And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when was the, the last time in your life where you looked up at God, or you looked up at heaven and said, is anyone in charge here? Is there, is there, how is this part of a good God's plan for my life? Right. You know, as I was getting ready to prepare this sermon, I had no idea I was going to have to apply it before I preached it. I mean, that's the theory. That's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> but I know we could all relate. There are moments where you are all of a sudden confronted with the fact of, I just don't have that much control in my life. Uh, moments where you do look up to heaven and say, God, I know you tell me you're on your throne and that you are in charge. I really hope this works out in my favor. And for us, it was just all the anxieties surrounded, surrounding our, our child Samson's birth. I mean, just wondering what if. Because on Thursday afternoon, this was on June 7th, he was born on June 8th. Bethany, my wife, just had a routine doctor's appointment. She was 39 weeks. We hadn't had any signs of trouble, really. Um, and while she was in the, the doc, normal doctor's office, they had trouble finding the heartbeat. And when they did find it, it was low. And when they put her in the ultrasound, the heartbeat was going up and down. And the nurses were obviously flustered. And I was ignorant at home, taking a nap with T and Ezra on the couch. <laughs> Talitha was sleeping on my phone, so I didn't hear anyone calling me. And so I was woken up to Sally knocking on the door, our administrator, to, to let me know Bethany's on, in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, possible C-section, there's a low heartbeat, maybe there's something wrong with the cord, we don't know. And so I, had, I got an escort from the nurse to, to our car at the doctor's office and had a long, lonely drive to the hospital. And as you know in those moments, um, sometimes your imagination is your friend and other times it is not. And, you know, those are all those questions swirling. Jesus, you tell me you're a lion and you're a lamb. You are, you are God and you are good. But if my child doesn't make it, you know, do I have the faith to handle it? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen here? Right? I was anxious, <laughs> as any, any parent would be. And I'm aware, as all of you are, I hope, uh, that Christians are not immune to any kind of hardship just because we're Christians. Uh, we don't get a pass. Jesus warned us, you will face trials and tribulation and, tr and difficulties in this world, but take heart, I've overcome. And so it's, it's in those moments that I want to, that I, this is where Revelation is helpful. Because <laughs> uh, it's at the intersection of our trials, our sorrows, our tears, our anxieties, that revelation comes alongside of us. Even though I know it's weird and there's, there's difficult pictures and different pictures, it's not the way we naturally think. It's really there to counsel us, uh, to confront us, uh, to, to let us know who is on, on the throne, to let us know who is in charge, uh, to help us answer who is in control of the chaos of my world, those kind of questions. Because really, Revelation is, is an imaginative retelling of everything that has been said before in the Bible for the good of, the, of Christ's suffering church. That's, what, that's all it is. It's using your imagination to, to, 
to get the truth to sink in so that you would believe Jesus is on the throne and in charge. Because, and it's for the suffering church. That's who the first recipients of this book were. They suffered much worse than we have. Some were tortured. Some were used as tiki torches in the garden of the emperor. They were lit on fire, literally. Some were torn apart by animals. Uh, some lost their homes. They were living their lives uh, just as exiles, as strangers, as perceived enemies by their own neighbors, and sometimes even their family members. All because they said, Jesus is king. And so this letter is written to counsel those who are afraid, who are suffering, to show us that there is no molecule that is outside of the control of King Jesus. So as we jump into this, I just want to hammer this home. It's all about Jesus, and it's for his suffering church who want to know God's plan and how he runs this world. And it's really simple. It's all it's about. It's Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the grand revealing. It's just a pi through pictures for those who are scared, for those who are weak, for those who are anxious. And so we're going to look at chapter 5, and we're going to dip into chapter 4. You're going to need your Bibles open. But we're going to ask who's in charge here, what kind of story are we find ourselves living in, and lastly, who is worthy. And so let's, let's look at this. I've, it's incredibly helpful. So if you go look at chapter 4, I said this, this is written for an anxious church. And Jesus does this creative thing. He sends this letter to seven churches and seven, I'm not going to do too much weird stuff with numbers, but seven is just the, the picture of completeness. And so this letter and these images are for every church and every his, uh, part of history and every culture and every age. It's, it's the church universal to, to show to show us Jesus, to help us overcome. And so what, that's what we need when we're anxious. Who is in charge here? And that's where we get a vision, or John is given a vision, and we are brought into it to show us the heavenly throne room, to show us who's in charge, um, to show us the God who is on the throne. And so chapter 4, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a brief overview and if you have questions, I may or may not have answers, but you can talk to me after. But John sees his vision of God on the throne, at the center. And it's strange, he can only describe him in abstract terms. He talks about him being like Jasper, which is this translucent, this clear stone. He's also somehow like a carnelian, which is like a bloodish, bloody reddish stone. Um, Trying, it's just trying to make sense of this being who's in charge. And around God on this throne is a rainbow that has this greenish glow like an emerald. But around God, then, you, you pull the picture out, are the angels and these four living creatures. And these four living creatures, one looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like an eagle, and one looks like a human being. And then you pull it out a little bit further, or all facing, looking at God on the throne, are 24 elders, which is probably just the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, the, the, the church before Jesus and the church after Jesus. It's a, a number picture. And all of this together 
is showing you uh, with the, that the angels, all of creation, the animals, the birds, human beings, the church before Jesus, the church after Jesus, they are all falling down in worship and praise of God, their creator. They're praising God as a good father, the Lord of creation. It's an abstract image, but they burst into praise and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and it's because of your will that they existed and were created. And that's the first image I want to put before you this morning. So God is on his throne, and he has the attention of all of creation. Don't be afraid. There's, there's a, this is an invitation, so to speak, to join them, to, to address your fears head on with the picture that God is in charge. He created this world, and he has not left this world alone, so much so that you see the animals, uh, the birds, and people together praising the goodness of their creator. That's why Pastor Keller says, look, there is a universal design to God's creation that includes you and me. <laughs> Every part of it. All designed to praise God our creator. It's you and me, the ants, the aardvarks, uh, the oceans, the mountains, the birds, the bugs. They're all gathered around the throne. And, at, and on that throne, at the very center of the universe, the one who, right, the very, in the the one who is in control of every centimeter of the cosmos. Right, who's sitting there? It's not you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the bearer of bad news. It's not me either. Right, it's God, the one who made us. And so what this is telling us, I'm trying to get us to wrestle with, is that the world that we live in, in all of its beauty, in all of its creativity, in all its diversity, it's the work of a divine artist who has a plan, who, who's still at work in his creation, that you and I are trapped in the cosmic painting that is God's creation. He's made this place. We can talk about us, right? The, the story of humanity has a divine author. He's the divine storyteller. He, sits in, he lives in heaven and sits on the throne. His name is God. He knows the number of hairs on your head or the freckles on your face and all of the sufferings you ever have, will, or will go through. Right? It was his will to write you into existence and then to speak you into existence. And he continues to sustain you through the word of his power. That's your God. He's an author. He's an artist. Right? I love what Nate Wilson says about God as creator. He says, God is like Shakespeare, Rembrandt, Botticelli, Dostoevsky, Van Gogh, when he had both ears, Michelangelo, Vivaldi, Gary Larson, all rolled into one. Right? There's a lot of metaphors there. And if you don't know who they are, they're all artists, authors. He's creative. He's good. He, it's by his will that you exist, and it's like this. It's his masterpiece. He's in charge. 
And so this is what you're called to do as a Christian with your fears is to see that he is praised by all of creation just in the fact that we exist. And that's where it happens at the end of chapter 5, right, where everybody just erupts in thunderous applause that's so loud it makes, well, it makes a World Cup stadium just sound like a whisper. And they're all saying, God is worthy. Praise him. Praise him. Get your eyes off yourself. Stop, stop looking at, the, at what you wish you had control of and look at the one who is in control. Now, come into chapter 5, we have this God who made us, who's calling you to praise him. It's part of your design. Uh, he's writing the story of this world. What is that story like? What is his plan? And so you get to 5.1, and we read about this scroll, that in God's right hand, who's on the throne, is a scroll written within and on the back, but it's sealed with seven seals. Right? And so a scroll, all a scroll is is just a book. It's an ancient book. They didn't have binding like we did. They, they took a parchment, they rolled it up and wrote on, on the, every little bit because they didn't want to waste paper. It's an ancient book rolled up. And because we're in Revelation, right, it's nothing new. Right, the scroll is something that's hinted at and been talked about before in the Old Testament. The scroll that nobody can read. A scroll that is sealed. It's from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, you have a picture of a book. And he, in this book, God has written his will, his plan for the world and for God's people. And in Isaiah 29, God's people go to read it and they don't have a clue what it says. It's a mystery. Right? It'd be like you who have no Hebrew training opening the Hebrew Bible and saying, what in the world is going on here? There's just a lot of dots and marks. I don't get it. Right? And so John sees God's book, the, the story of human history, all written in the scroll, God's plan for the world, including you and me, and it's locked tight. We don't know what it is. It's the scroll that no one can read. And in that includes God's will for the world, his plan for redemption, to fix all that is wrong with this world, uh, his plan to redeem you from God's wrath, to save you from judgment, his plan to renew all things, to crush evil. I mean, in this scroll is God's will for everything. For you, for the ants, for the oceans, the cosmic creation. But we don't know what it says. That's how Revelation 5 begins. It's closed. And frankly, that's where we live, is it, is it not? <laughs> God, what are you doing right now? I don't get it. I can't see it. What's your plan? You, you tell me you wrote this plan. You hand wrote it in a book. But I can't see it. So how do I trust you? What kind of story do I live in anyway? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Uh, is it full of sound and fury signifying nothing, as Shakespeare said? And yet, within the scroll is this idea that God is a good God, he is sovereign, he has a plan, he is an author, and he has every detail planned out. Every detail, down to the colors of your eyes and the numbers of days that you will live on this earth. But it's because we can't read the scroll, it's because when we suffer, we don't know what the plan is, that's when we get afraid. That's when we start to wonder, what is the author like? 
Is he good? Is he a good father? Will he protect me in these moments? Or will he leave me hanging out to dry? Um, is he maniacal? Is he distant? Is he, is he just like kids uh, with salt and a slug, right, enjoying suffering? You know, what is this God like? We need the scroll to make that clear, and we need the scroll to be open to make that clear, but we can't open the scroll. That's what John is, is wrestling with. Right? And so here's how you, we deal with it, I think. I mean, there are those of us who, in the mystery of not wondering what God is like, we say there is no God, there is no plan, there is no scroll. He can't be good because of how bad my life is. Right? Where we look at the world and say there is no author, there is no scroll, which means I am the author of my life. And you can see just... Follow the train of thought with me. If there is no scroll, if there is no plan, no divine author, that means you are alone come up with meaning for your life. Or really, there is no ultimate purpose or intention behind it. Right? That's why honest atheist Bertrand Russell would say, you're just the, the result of a bunch of atoms that accidentally bumped into each other. And boom, the cosmos exists. Right. You, know, you know the old saying, if, if you leave a bunch of monkeys in a room, they'll, they'll eventually come up with Shakespeare. Right. Well, the reality, if there is no author, a bunch of monkeys really did come up with Shakespeare <laughs> by accident. Which is another way of saying, if your beginning of your life had no intention, and the end of your life has no ultimate purpose or meaning, if there's no author, there's no fairy tale ending. You live in the midst of the story, hoping for meaning, but ultimately they will be forgotten. That's why we're afraid. Live your life well. May the odds be in your favor. Or, this is what we as Christians do, and what we're being called to see here is say there is a scroll, there is a plan, there is a book, an author who's thought of every detail of your life, it's because of his goodwill that you exist. Uh, it's because of his will that he is pursuing you right now. Uh, who knows the words before you speak them, before they're ever on the tip of your tongue. Uh, the words of praise and the words of profanity. And there's a plan for that. In the scroll, if we could see it. <laughs> so this is a question, right? Do you know the one who is in charge? And do you know that he, he has planned this thing out and that all the chaos will be tried together into a neat bow at the end. That's how the book of Revelation ends, into a beautiful work of art, which will get better and better each and every day. Because right? Revelation, what this is doing is telling you and your fears, get out of God's chair. He's on the throne. He's in control. Rest in that because he's good. Worship your way out of fear and rest in his story. What kind of story is it? You go back to Revelation 5. There's good news and bad news. God has a sealed scroll in his hand, and along comes the angel who says with a booming voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break his seals to actually come into God's presence uh, to understand his will and then have the power to enact it. 
to make it happen. It is possible to know, but we need somebody worthy. Who is worthy? Is there anyone in heaven who is worthy? Is there ever anyone in earth or under the earth? And all John heard was crickets. It's nothing. And he fell apart. I mean, it says he didn't just shed a tear. He says he wept loudly, which means he sobbed like you just lost a loved one. Why? Because if we don't know God's will and God's, that he is good for us, if God never actually works out his plan of salvation, there's no hope for us, right? It means there will be no fairy tale ending for your anxieties, <laughs> for your guilt, for your shame, for your misery. But even more so, John is confessing his sin. He's saying, I am unworthy, and all of humanity is unworthy. There's nobody good enough to even approach God, much less take the scroll from his hand and do what he wants. And so John's weeping because the mystery of your life, of God's plan, apparently is going to stay silent unless there's someone who is worthy. All right. You see it? He's emotionally crushed in the worship and in the presence of his God. This is why we confess our sin every week on Sundays. He's saying, I'm not worthy. Right, that if, I were, if God were to open the, the story of my life, his scroll, I would see my name in it, and I would see that the story of my life doesn't paint me as, a, as the hero of my story, as the hero of God's story. It actually tells me that I'm the villain. That God is in charge and in the story of his world, because I've wanted to do things my way, I've made myself the villain. I'm the one who's ruined the world. Right? As, as, as G, I think it was uh, Chesterton ages ago when um, there was an article in the London Times that were just people just writing in and saying, what's wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote in with two words. He said, dear sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I'm not worthy. And I can prove it to you because in John 4, what's around the throne is this graphic image that's supposed to remind you of your unworthiness and mine. It's the rainbow. Right? The rainbow is a symbol, yes, of God's unrelenting, never-failing commitment to preserve and protect creation. After the flood, he promises, I'll never destroy the earth this way. I, the, the rainbow is a sign that I have put my warlike spirit on the wall. Because the rainbow is a literal word for warbow. And it's, it's put up, hanging on the wall, pointing at heaven. God says, I will keep that promise. At cost to me. The war is pointing at me. But it's not just a reminder of God's faithfulness. It's a reminder of how bad humanity is. That's Genesis 6. The Lord looked down and saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That's what's in the scroll. And because this is why John is weeping. This is why we 
we fall apart when we see that, that Jesus dies for us. Because Genesis 6 is telling you that the, if this world is like a priceless painting, we are that person who goes in the museum with a sharpie and, and tries to improve it and do things our way and deface what God has made. We do it with our words, through our insults. How those made in the image of God, we curse them with the same tongue that we praise our God and Father. And that's just one example. That's why John is weeping. He's saying nobody is worthy. How, how is this life going to be fixed? I can't see a way out. I can't fix me, and I can't fix the world. I'm the villain. Who is worthy? That's what it leaves you with. And this is where we're going to end. Because you have to look up. Because the elder says, don't weep anymore. Because there is one who is worthy. He has conquered. All right, look, at, look at Jesus. He is the one who will take away your fears and make you more than a conqueror through the midst of your suffering. He will help you overcome. The lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll. He will answer your questions. <laughs> he will help you overcome. And it's telling you, one, there's someone strong enough and noble enough to come down on earth to withstand all the temptations this world has to offer and to tame the chaos that is evil. Just like a lion putting its foot on, on the throat of a, a gazelle it's freshly killed. A lion. That's the picture you're supposed to see when you look at Jesus. It's a symbol of strength, of power. The one who has the ability, as we've seen in the Gospels over and over again, to tell a hurricane to, to shut up and be silent and have it listen. Who can heal disease. He is the promised king, the lion the tr of the tribe of Judah. And so just think about a lion for a moment. And maybe the Kenya team will see one when they're on safari. When, when I was uh, in college, we got to camp in Tanzania in a, in a, on safari. And in the next morning, I mean, right in the, in the night, we heard baboons yelling at us because they took our, our camp. We took their home, and they were just mad. I didn't know what they were. They were just growling. So my imagination, I thought it was a lion. So I was afraid all night. <laughs> but in the morning in our campsite, you know what we found? Our metal pot that we used to cook our dinner had literally been torn by hyenas. Right, some, like, almost a cast iron pot because of the strength of their jaws had torn it apart. And the hyenas, when they see lions, they, they flee. Right, they don't mess with them. That's Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah who is noble and majestic and able to walk not unaffected by suffering, but stronger than it. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. But the problem is, if this is Jesus, if he is a lion, if you're going to come to him with your unworthiness, it's terrifying. What do you think he's going to do to us? Because you can picture his power on, on our throat. Is he safe? And when John looks up to see this lion, this is what's fascinating. He doesn't see a lion anymore. He sees a lamb the lamb who had been slain. And it's, 
It's the lion and the lamb who takes the scroll from God's hand. And he sees this lamb as like it had been, its throat had been cut with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so instead of seeing this all-powerful God who's going to right wrongs through strength, he sees the lamb who's going to fix everything that's wrong with the world through his death. And it's, not a, it's a meek lamb, but it's not a weak lamb. It has seven horns, infinite strength. It has seven eyes. There's nothing he does not know about you or this world. He dies for sinners with his eyes wide open. He knows what we are like. He knows the addictions, the selfishness, the cruelty. He knows us. This is the one who is worthy. That God says, you take the scroll. You're in charge now. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to you. And so you ask, well, what's the lamb about? It's grace. The one who is in charge of this world, who's making the mystery of God's will for you known, he's telling you that the, the God who is wants to dwell with you, and the God who is wants to dwell with you so much that the hero of the story, the lamb, is willing to die for the villain. So much so that he's done it. Right, and the lamb is all part of God's rescue story of looking down at suffering. The people of Israel of old, trapped in slavery, you'll remember, wondering if anyone's in charge because they've been, on, they've been suffering for 400 years. Right, is there a God? Does he see me? Does he know me? Does he care about my trials? And, and we read in Exodus 4, God sees them. He has compassion. And he sends Moses... And the final part of his rescue plan is the tenth plague. Where God says to the people of Israel, I want you to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, and I want you to kill it. Take a paintbrush, put its blood on the doorpost, and don't come out because I'm going to come down in judgment, the judgment you deserve. And when I rescue you, you're going to be tempted to feel like you're the hero of the story. Don't. You need the blood of the lamb to forgive your sins. I'm going to come down in the dark in judgment, and all those under the blood of the Lamb will be spared. <laughs> and years later, we read in John 1, as Jesus, in the flesh, is walking by the River Jordan, and all of a sudden it's like, it's like the, whole picture, the whole thing clicked in John's mind. John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. You see it? What John understood, it's not a lamb that saves anybody. It was waiting for the one who is worthy to come from heaven to earth to go through the darkness of judgment for you, the villain, to be slain, to have his, have it, to be wounded, to be killed so that by his wounds you might be healed. And that's what's in the scroll. That the one who is in charge of your story, who's writing your story now, who's speaking your story as the author, is the one who has wounds in his hands. And so when you are anxious, when you are afraid, you're wondering, is he mad at me? You have to look at the lamb slain, the lion, and say, he, he died for me. He can't be mad at me. And he is with me. Because what happens if you put faith in this Jesus, he brings you into the story, and now you get to be on the side of the hero Jesus. 
And you get to have everything he has. You get to be what he is. You, you get to come into the heavenly throne room. Twenty-four elders gathered around. There is a, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, it says. Which means he's going to help you overcome. And one day you will get there. And until then, what sustains us is this new song. And that's how Revelation 5 ends. Where we look at Jesus and say, you are worthy. Because you were slain and it was by your blood that you have ransomed people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. To make them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. We praise the Lamb. Even as we wait for the lion to write what is wrong. And so I'll end with this. What are you afraid of? The story of your life is in the hands of the lamb slain. He is ruling and reigning. And the picture that John gives for the suffering church is that he's ruling and reigning for the church. And he will lead you through it. Or as Martin Luther said in our reflection, as long as Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us, you can never doubt that he is for you, his favor and grace towards you. Because he, he rules with wounds of love. And he has a plan for you to include you in this new creation. But to get there, you have to confess your part in ruining the first one. <laughs> do you have the humility to do that? Now, you gotta, I want to send you off as, as Christ does here in this passage because it says, you know who you are now if you would believe, believe in this story? He says, one, you're no longer the villain. You are a king in Christ's kingdom. You're royalty, which ought to lift up your head while you suffer because he will not forget you. That every, every trial and tribulation has the paw of the lion of the tribe of Judah on his throat, and nothing takes place apart from his permission and his plan, and you are included as a part of that plan, and because you are his king, his ruler, those who reign on the earth with him, he won't leave you alone. And se second, you're no longer the villain, you're also a priest. You are those sent with a message to tell the same story that's made sense of your story. You are armed with the story of Jesus the King who is lying in the Lamb. And you have the mystery of the universe being, being revealed. Why are you here? To be enjoyed by God and to enjoy Him at the cost of Christ's life. And we're going to praise the Lamb for eternity in a new creation. You're a priest. You get to come into God's presence and introduce other people to the author of your story. So how do you do that? Well, there's one more thing about the scroll. I know I'm bombarding you with images, but that's what Revelation does, so just deal with it, I guess. <laughs> right? There's another place in the Old Testament that says, what do you do with a scroll? What do you do with the story of the, the world that's ruled by a lion and a lamb? With infinite, who's, who's high and exalted and infinitely lowly and humble. 
Well, Ezekiel, you know what he's told to do? Eat it. Digest it. Make, a, make it a part of who you are. Make it a part of your daily life. Make it something that sustains you each and every moment. Ezekiel said to eat this book and it'll taste like honey because Jesus has taken all the bitterness of judgment out of it. Which is another way of Jesus saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, you have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. Just saying, you, you and I need to find creative ways as John does, as Jesus is doing to just digest the story that you are more loved than you can imagine despite being more unworthy than you would ever care to admit. But your lamb who was slain is alive and he will come back for you. So don't be afraid because he is worthy. Let's pray. Now, Father, you uh, bombarded our senses with your goodness and I pray that it would sink in, uh, that we would see and believe that you do love us, that you do care for us, and that even the trials and tribulations are, are the way in which you are going to get us to the shores of the new heavens and new earth. And then we will look back and say, that's why you did it. Our eyes will be opened. Until then, I pray you would help us trust us, trust you in the darkness when we can't see what we are doing as we look at Jesus, the Lamb slain, who trusted you in the darkness alone so that we would not have to. So I pray you would draw near to your people and comfort them with your compassion and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.